Blog Talk Radio. Close all university departments for black, Latino, women, gender, queer studies, and so forth as incompatible with science and dismiss its faculties as intellectual imposters or scoundrels. As well, demand that all affirmative action commissars, diversity and human resource officers from universities on down to schools and kindergartens be thrown out onto the street and be forced to learn some useful trade. Six, crush the anti-fascist mob. The transvaluation of all values throughout the West, the invention of ever more victim groups, the spread of affirmative action programs, and the relentless promotion of political correctness has led to the rise of an anti-fascist mob, tacitly supported and indirectly funded by the ruling elites this self-described mob of social justice warriors has taken upon itself the task of escalating the fight against white privilege through deliberate acts of terror directed against anyone and anything deemed racist, right-wing, fascist, reactionary, incorrigible, or unreconstructed. Such enemies of progress are physically Good afternoon. This is Clifton Knox and David German, who will be joining us in just a few moments for Punching Left. And we're pretty excited about today's episode because we have an English guest with us today, uh, Dr. David Gordon. Uh, Dr. Gordon is, uh, works with the Mises Institute, been around quite a long time. He's written books such as Resurrecting Marx, The Analyx- Analytical Marxist on Freedom. Uh, <clears throat> he's also... Uh, written The Philosophical Origins of Austrian Economics, and uh, edited the collection Secession, State, and Liberty. Um, And Dr. Gordon, you've been described by Murray Rothbard as uh, Mr. Erudition and and as a polymath, and you've also uh, been described as the semi-official reviewer of, uh, of a libertarian community. How are you doing this afternoon? Oh, pretty good, thanks. Thanks very much for inviting me on your show. Oh, uh, well, it's our it's our pleasure and our privilege. Um, <clears throat> so I was kind of wondering, uh, you know, if you would like to take a moment to sort of talk about any any projects or work that you're currently uh, have have going on that you would like to let people out there know that, that you're currently doing. Uh, Well, I'm continuing uh, to teach at the Mises Institute. We have uh, two main programs every year, the uh, Rothbard Graduate Seminar and the Mises University, and I've been in those for a long time, and I'm going to be going this uh, June to the RGS and then July to the Rothbard Graduate Seminar. And I'm also continuing my book reviews i i like to say if you can't say something bad about a book why say it at all (laughs) i like that (laughs) so so and i've read some of your book reviews and i I think you're you're pretty thorough usually uh, as far as you know uh, pointing out uh some of those bad things you're talking about um you know, uh, and and I think that one of the things that helps is you, that you've offered quite you've authored quite a bit of of work yourself. Um, how, how many books would you say that you've authored at this point total? Uh, I think it's about five or six, actually. And I've done articles also, a lot of articles. I I used to write for some of the philosophy journals, but then most of my Recent stuff has been for the uh, Mises publications and others, so I I, uh, I like to write it. It's fairly easy because you know when you have arguments, all you have to do is set up the argument that someone has given and then try to find something wrong with it. Oh 
Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so, um, on your book, I guess, I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming this was the first, uh, book that you had authored. Was it, uh, resurrecting Marx, the analytical Marxist on freedom, exploitation, uh, yes, and justice? Yes, that's right. I did a short thing called, I think, uh, uh, critics of Marx. That was much shorter. That came out a little bit before that, but the big, the first big one that was uh, resurrecting Marx. That's right. So, so I, you know, one of the things that I've always noticed, and, and I've had a few dealings with uh, Marxists, both when I was in undergrad school and different occasions, and and I've noticed that they have a tendency. They, they they don't really get their feathers ruffled unless you hit them right in their soft spot, and, and you had a few people that their feathers just sort of ruffled over this book, didn't they? Uh, well, yes, there were uh, some of the some of the Marxists didn't didn't like the book too much. I I had uh, there, there was one reviewer in the uh, I think it was a, a book something called Reviews in Sociology really was not very happy with me, thought I'd misunderstood Marx. And then he misquoted various things from the book. But I did get some good reviews uh, from the Anthony Flew, who was a very well-known British philosopher, liked my book, and then uh, Paul Gottfried also. So it it had, uh, had rather mixed reception, but it's fallen into oblivion now. <laughs> well, well, don't you think? I mean, from from my experience, again, my personal anecdotal experience, um, it, that's that's usually when when you say something, uh, whether it's a in a paper or in a debate, that really seems to to hit home, sort of hit the bullseye. That's that's a fairly common response. Is you just you just don't understand Marx. You, you've misunderstood him. Haven't you heard that a million times? Oh, oh yes, I think that's a very good point there. Very few people who are committed to a view who will say when they hear a counter argument, "Oh, now I see I was wrong about this here. I'll have to change my <laughs> views that that's uh i mean it it does occasionally happen I think also I think Marx is in particular it's a movement that's not only an intellectual theory but people devote their lives to it it has they're committed to it so if they're that strongly committed to it 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 would be very hard for them to change their opinions they would have to really uh, change their entire life i mean that that did happen there were a lot of there were famous cases in the 1950s and 60s where people were in the American Communist Party, and then they became anti-communists. They had uh, they changed their mind completely, but it is rather rare, I would think. Yeah, I would think so too. I mean, that's sort of the story on a lot of uh, guys like Irvin Crystal and and uh, Sidney Hook. Those guys uh, started out as Trotskyites and so on, and, and eventually sort of came over at least somewhat to the other side and, and sort of left a lot of that behind, I, I think. And that that would might be an example of some people that, that made some changes at some point in their life. Oh, oh yes, yes, Sidney. You know, I'll tell you a story about Sidney Hook. You know, he he taught at uh, NYU for most of his career, but then he, he retired to uh, California. He lived near Palo Alto, so... For a while, when uh, Murray Rothbard would spend time was in in, uh, in the summers in Palo Alto, uh, I think there were a few years that he rented Sidney Hook's house. No, I did not know that. Wow, that <laughs> well, that's one thing about about you, uh, Doctor Gordon. You know quite a bit about uh, Murray, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you were, you were pretty good friends with Murray, weren't you? Oh yes, yes. I knew I knew Murray for about seventeen years. I was on the phone with him and all the time. Oh yes, yes. I knew him and his wife Joey very well. Yeah. So so yeah. That that's a that's pretty neat. I had no idea that he uh, ever <laughs> rented Sydney Hook's house. That's, that's a pretty neat uh, little tidbit. Um, 
So, so one of the things that I've read uh, that was said about that book, at Resurrecting Marx, um, uh, there was some something about essentially that you had come out and said that analytical Marxists, um, if if they were if they if someone was was pro dialect the, the dialectical method maybe uh you could scratch them off the off the list of as a as a philosophical marxist is that would that be a correct statement or is that sort of an incorrect uh, yes statement? I, I i did say that in the book i'm not sure i was entirely right uh, there see the reason i said that was that the analytical marxists were a group of Marxists, mostly English, such as uh, G.A. Cohen was one, and there were some Americans like the economist uh, John Romer, and what? And there was a, a Norwegian uh, uh, political theorist, uh, Jan Elster. And what they wanted to do, they said, well, uh, Marxism has a lot of... Uh, unscientific and uh, outdated concepts attached. Uh, uh, We've got to streamline it. We can apply modern uh, economics, sociology, and history, and analytical philosophy. So in, uh, in mainstream analytical philosophy tends to be very critical of dialectics, Hegel's dialectics. So it was for that reason I said it, but there are there are some analytical Marxists. Elster is probably the best example, who did think one could give a reconstruction of dialectics. I perhaps went a bit too far in what I said, although I think one could still put up a defense for the main lines of what I suggested in that past. So maybe as a as a generalization, it's probably true more than it's false. We could, I, I think that might be fair, right? Yeah, that, yes, I mean, you won't find it in the analytical Marxists, you won't find, say, uh, references to dialectical materialism or the uh, transformation of quantity into quality or the negation of the negation or familiar themes in... Uh, in dialectical materialism, I mean, this isn't this isn't found. They were also reacting against the French Marxist Louis Althusser, who was a uh, very influential French writer who had his own version of dialectics, which wasn't Hegelian, was kind of his own way of doing things. So they were reacting against that as well. So in that sense you could say they were against that as well. It was more of a, if you say, if you, if, if you can imagine a mainstream analytical philosopher who wasn't familiar with Marxism before looking at various Marxist works, he would find that the, the analytical Marxists would be much more in line with ways of thought he was, used to say that what some of the more dialectical Marxists. Okay. So, I mean, and that, that makes sense. I, I think that it's kind of a, it's sort of a funny, it's sort of a fine line because you will find some Marxists who, who seem to think that they, they feel as though that, that Marx is really a continuation of that, that, that they've applied, um, uh, Socratic, the Socratic method, in many ways, to to come up with their their endpoints with with Marxist philosophy. Though I, I often happen to disagree with some of that, but um, I, the reason I wondered about that because it was it was a very interesting statement, I, and I appreciate you, you um, oh, elaborating on yeah. that. Yes, well, when you speak of Socratic, there you know, uh, uh, Socratic dialectic or heuristics, that would be more a process of questioning uh, various ideas to get out the underlying assumptions. But uh, that sort of dialectic doesn't involve usually an appeal to an explicit set of doctrines, so it would be different from Hegelian dialectic or Marx or uh, 
dialectical materialism. So in, in the sense of Socratic dialectic, I don't think you could say there's an opposition between the analytic Marxist and that sort of dialectic. That would just okay. be more of a standard process of questioning, which would be characteristic of all philosophical thought or all good philosophical thought. Okay. Thank you again for, for elaborating on that as well. Um, so uh, taking that into consideration, I mean, you also wrote another book, um, The Philosophical Origins of, of Austrian Economics. And I think that, that Murray Rothbard uh, had, a lot, had some good things to say about that book. Um, can you kind of tell us a little bit about what what you were what it was that you were teaching us in, with that work? Oh yes, yes. Well, that was actually based on a lecture that I gave in the late 1980s on uh, in the Mises University. I think it was uh, actually a transcription of the lecture with some notes and other things added. And what I was doing there was uh, I was suggesting some uh, an affinity between the Mises and Rothbard style of economics and Aristotelian philosophy in the sense of looking at the essences of phenomena and trying to get necessary connections. Uh, if I were in my more recent work, I tended to be a bit different, not that I repudiate what I said in that book, but I tend to think now that uh, Austrian economics isn't dependent on a particular philosophical standpoint, but in that one, I, I, was, tr I was suggesting some affinity between uh, praxeology, which is the science of human action as developed by Mises and Rothbard, with Aristotelian philosophy, and I, I was suggesting there that uh, it, you need not take praxeology as having a basically uh, Kantian orientation. Some people do that, but basically uh, Mises was very influenced by Kant. But I was suggesting there that uh, you don't have to do that, that praxeology shouldn't be really taken as essentially Kantian. And my view now is it shouldn't be taken really as committed to any particular philosophical point of view. There are various philosophies that are compatible with the Austrian approach. Uh, do you do you think that uh, in the beginning phases, I, I know that there's been some minor talk. I mean, nothing that really stands out, but some minor connections between some of the uh, writings in, in the 1850s range uh, uh, with uh, Herbert Spencer in the, in the Economist and some of his, his work on evolutionary theory. That I've, I've read in a, in a couple of places that there was some uh, possible influence on early, early Austrian thinkers like Karl Menger. Do you, do you, have you heard anything like that? And if you have, do you think there's anything to it? Uh, I'm not really familiar with that. I, I mean, it's certainly true that uh, Spencer was wrote a great deal on evolution. He also wrote on uh, on political topics. But he, uh, I don't think, from what I understand of Menger's work, I don't think he was committed to any particularly views about uh, evolutionary cosmology of the sort that Spencer had in mind, but I'd want to see what this, what the work is before giving you some comments on it. I mean, I, I'm not really familiar with that line of speculation offhand. I right. think it, it would require quite a bit of, I, I would require quite a bit of com convincing, but as I say, uh, I don't, I haven't seen that suggestion really, and I'm, I'm not offhand seeing how the connection could be made, which may just reflect deficiency in my ability to see connections, but offhand, I would think they were rather different enterprises. Okay. 
I, I think there uh, one one book there might have been some reference to that was uh, the International Encyclopedia of Sociology, uh, where they talked about the Austrian school some. Um, I know I know that that uh, Murray I think was was influenced at least some, at least in a small part or small way by Spencer, um, from from some of the things I've read. Of course, could be could be wrong about that, but I thought I'd read something along those. Lines. Oh, oh yes, well, I mean, he was certainly influenced by. He, Spencer's political writing, such as the man version mm-hmm. of the state in the, uh, in the um, uh, uh, social statics. Yeah, yes, of course, and uh, also the ethics, the two volumes, the social statics. For, but I mean, certainly influenced, I like that rather deductive method that uh, Spencer, Spencer employed, but that's rather different from uh, Spencer's views on on uh, evolution. I, I should tell you sort of another uh, story about Murray. He didn't write about this very much, but as far as I know, but uh, Murray was rather skeptical about biological evolution altogether. Didn't think the uh, okay. arguments were neat. very good for it. So you say he was he was rather skeptical of it. Yes, it wasn't. Uh, you know, uh, many people were opposed to uh, theory of evolution. May have religious reasons. This wasn't Murray's view. He wasn't a religious person, but he just thought that the arguments for evolution that he'd seen weren't very good ones. He he did he he was interested in the. There was a writer, Emmanuel Velikovsky, who had a, kind of a catastrophic account of evolution uh, Earth in Upheaval was one of his most famous book was World in Collision but the one about evolution was Earth in Upheaval I thought uh, Murray rather liked that book I don't think he was that strongly committed to it but he thought there was something to it but uh, he, I, as far as I know he, w- he wouldn't have uh, he wasn't influenced by the evolutionary uh, views of, of Spencer. Now, he, in fact, in uh, one of, he was critical of what it was sometimes called social Darwinism. Now, there's a big controversy about whether Spencer can be actually described as a social Darwinist. In many respects, he wasn't, but uh, Murray wasn't sympathetic to that line of thought at all. Okay. That's a that's good good information. I, huh. Well, yeah, I I'm I am familiar with that that range of um, that thought that some people include him have thrown him into that camp, and some people have argued that he just asked that he wasn't, and I and I'm familiar with the argument uh, along the lines that uh, essentially from from what I can gather, uh, the guy I can't remember his name. He wrote a fairly authoritative authoritative book on. On Spencer, uh, bio, you know, his biography-wise, and one of the things that he he pointed out, and it was citations, was that apparently somewhere along the lines, uh, Marx's original, not Marx, uh, Darwin's original uh, theory of evolution somehow became transposed upon Spencer, and and as late as the 1960s or 70s. Uh, some of the people who were calling themselves Darwinists at the time had actually adopted some of Spencer's ideas and were saying that they were Darwin's ideas and that uh, what we see now is that a lot of what what we call Darwinism is actually really Spencerism in some some cases. But um, And so it, it's sort of erroneous that actually it was Darwin who was probably more of the social Darwinist than, than it was Spencer. Um, oh, oh, yeah, based yeah. On, the, on that particular uh, that uh, I mean, Darwin did talk in about that the, the primitive races would be uh, exterminated or fail in the struggle for life. And, uh, Spencer Spencer was not opposed to private charity. I mean, he thought that people should be aware of some of the consequences of what when they were giving. They should be aware of all the consequences. But he was in favor of of private charity and uh, helping helping others. He wasn't someone who said, well, if somebody's failing, let's, let's just let them fall by the wayside because that'll advance evolution. That, that wasn't his line of thought at all. 
Yeah, that's that's a good point as well. And uh, something that's interesting about about him on that, um, he he started out, uh, if I remember right, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he started out uh, very pro women's suffrage, and then in the later years began to become a sort of uh, uh, adversarial to the idea, based on he he, he believed that uh, women would vote for social programs and, and that would increase socialism. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, in some funny. respects, he he became less radical uh, later on. He he thought, for example, in social statics, he thought that the landlords should be dispossessed. They had acquired their property illegitimately. But then, in principles of ethics, uh, the, he said, "Well, it would be uh, very hard to separate what." to figure out what the historical rights and wrongs were. So we should just be very careful about the upsetting things and having any massive changes. So he did become somewhat less radical, but he was always opposed to uh, state intervention. He didn't, He was very consistent on that. He, he what he called the new Toryism, which was uh, a revival of state intervention and mercantilist measures that uh, some of them got rid of in the early 19th century but then they tend to come back so Spencer was very opposed to that uh, you know having this discussion because Spencer's not somebody who's, who's discussed a lot nowadays but having this discussion with you I mean the the, the, the breadth of your knowledge is, is, is pretty amazing I mean you, you just you, you just know so much about so many of these these different people, and it, uh, it, it makes perfect sense, you know, that uh, all, all the 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 good things that people said, such as that you're one of the only guys that they know that, that knows as much as Murray Rothbard and so on. It makes oh, sense to me. Oh, I, I mean, just having I this discussion. With don't you. no no. Well, my usual rule is, you know, if someone asks me something, if I don't know it, I just make it up and hope they don't catch me <laughs> out till later. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good stuff, Dr. Gordon. Well, I, I hear David there in the background. I wanted to kind of bring him into the discussion for a minute. and see, David, do you have any questions for Dr. Gordon? So you've been patiently listening to him and I discuss uh, Spencer yeah. and so on for the last 15, 20 minutes. So I'll give you an opportunity to, to talk with Dr. Gordon. Um. Did Murray Rothbard and Ayn Rand cross influence each other in any way? Uh, well, I mean, they they knew each other from quite early on, and uh, Murray's initial reaction to Rand was quite negative. He didn't like her much, and various people in his circle uh, were critical of Ayn Rand. But then, when Atlas Shrugged, came out, uh, Murray was very impressed with the book, and he wrote uh, Ayn Rand a fan letter. And for a while, uh, Murray's group, which was called the Circle Bastiat, met with the Rand's group, which he called the Collective, and they got along fairly well. Uh, and then they soon had a quarrel and broke up. Now, the question you asked on influence, uh, I don't know how, much, to what extent, if any, uh, Rand was influenced by Rothbard. She may well have read some of his economic stuff. In philosophy, there are some people who have claimed that uh, Rothbard, Aristotelian philosophy, was really taken from Rand and her followers, uh, such as Nathaniel and Barbara Brandon. But he had he had really come up with, uh, he had studied uh, Aristotelian philosophy when he was in university. He'd been influenced by uh, book uh, notes on epistemology by Father Thule, which was, uh, and various other uh, Thomist uh, manuals and material he studied. So there were some, there were some similarities, but of course Rand was taken a lot from Aristotle as well. So I think there there are some parallels in 
in philosophy between Rand and Murray, but also some differences. And uh, there was a famous argument uh, that uh, Murray had an essay in a volume called The Mantle of Science, where he gave an argument uh, against determinism. And the, the argument against determinism is something like, uh, if determinism were true, then suppose somebody said, well, I believe in determinism, or I accept the arguments for determinism, then the person saying that would be determined, and so the person would have no rational grounds for accepting determinism. So it's a rather a claim that asserting determinism undermines itself. I don't know that whether that's actually a good argument, but that was one. That was an argument that Murray gave. Many people think there's something. There's probably something to it if it's stated the right way. It's a much contested topic. But uh, Rand, the Rand group, especially Nathaniel Branded, claimed that Murray had plagiarized this argument from. Uh, the master's thesis by Barbara Brandon, and in response, Rothbard had to point out that there were a great many writers before Barbara Brandon who advanced this argument. It was quite a well-known argument. It wasn't uh, something that uh, she invented. It would be. It, it would be. In fact, they they sent the. the, the Robert sent the, con- the, uh, the whole correspondence to Ludwig von Mies, and he said he was surprised that people would think that this was uh, had been an original argument. It was very well known. In fact, one of the odd things is that uh, one of the main supporters of that style of argument was Immanuel Kant, who was the big enemy of the intellectual enemy of the Iranian. So. They were, in effect, <laughs> accusing Murray of plagiarizing a Kantian argument, which they had, had taken over unknowingly. So so this is Cliff again. So one of the things, I mean, it, just a personal observation, it, it seems to me that Ayn Rand often had a habit of attacking sometimes people who either one were uh, could be seen as influential on her or or maybe had similar arguments that were as important as hers and she seemed to be somewhat uh, ready to go on the offense against those people maybe that's just a my particular point of view but oh, oh yes well, I, I haven't studied her as much as some people she de- she did like things her own way uh, uh, one uh, one story i i I'll, find a bit funny is that she, they were, they were published a few years ago, I think, edited by uh, Mayhew, it was a volume of notes she'd taken on various books that she read, and it included her notes on human action. She, she was very critical of von Mises for what she thought was Kantian de- uh, deviations in his theory of knowledge, but one that I thought was funny, uh, she said, she points out he talks about the law of supply and demand and she she noted in one place he calls it demand and supply instead of supply and demand and she thought that was a bit suspicious she wondered why he was saying demand and supply instead of supply and demand <laughs> oh that's that's pretty that is pretty funny and uh so so you know, along that story, I guess that um, Murray wrote the article. Uh, uh, was it um, Mozart was a red? Oh, oh yes, yes, that was yes, kind of uh, sociology behind Rand cult, as he called it. And he did Mozart was a red was a play he wrote, uh, uh, rather making fun of the Rand circle. <laughs> Okay, so so David, do you have any other questions you wanted to ask uh, Dr. Gordon? Um, on economics, she was influenced by Mises, right? Pardon me? 
on an economic grant was um, um, Mizezian. Who, who was, David? Uh, you kind of broke up. Ayn Rand. Yeah, I, 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 sorry, I couldn't hear. I heard Mizezian, and that was the last I heard. Ayn, Ayn Rand. Mm. On on economics, was Ayn Rand uh, sort of Mizezian? Uh, yes, yes, she she was. She recommended Mises' work. She didn't think he had a good philosophical foundation for his system, but she liked the economics, and she recommended his books. And also uh, Henry Hazlitt was one she wrote. She she liked very much. That's right. So they uh, in the. the uh, she she thought very highly of uh, the Misesian economics, and so uh, so the first economists who were the ones who were most in the Rand group, the ones who knew were most interested in economics were uh, George Reisman, who had been a member of Murray's group, but then when the split came between uh, Murray and Iran, he join the Randian group rather than stay with Murray. And so, and also Alan Greenspan, who later became the Federal Reserve Chair. So they were the two most influential uh, people in economics in the Rand circle. Hmm. I should say, Reese really can't stand Greenspan. He doesn't like him at all. <laughs> Okay, so that that is that very interesting. I had I, I had forgotten completely about the fact that Greenspan had been in the Rand circle. Uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. So, he he uh, he claims he never changed his views. As I understand, even though he he went in with the with the government, he he claims he was he never changed his views in support of the gold standard. But he just thought that if we can't have the gold standard, the next best thing would be to have the uh, monetary policy managed by experts who, was, who really knew what they were doing, and particularly by him. Hmm. So, I think it's interesting, you know, over all the years, all, all the different individuals, the names, for instance, I, I, the one thing that so far that still strikes me funny, even after the last 30 minutes to think about it, is the fact that Murray used to rent Sidney Hook's house. <laughs> still, oh, oh, yes, still, yes, uh, yes did I, I, I remember once when I was at the uh, Hoover Library, when I was visiting Murray, I, I, I saw Sidney Hook. There he was wearing a beret. He was now another. You know, uh, my I don't know if you know uh, Father James Sadowski, who was a, a follower, of a philosopher who taught at Fordham, who was a follower of uh, of Murray Rothbard, uh, had been a student of Sidney Hook, and also uh, Leonard Peikoff, who was one of the major. Uh, Philosophical followers of Ayn Rand uh, did his PhD dissertation under Hook, so there is some uh, no, connection between that. Hook and various uh, libertarian or Randian figures. Huh? Yeah, yeah. He and, and it is funny. You see that you know some of, sometimes you see uh, some some connections between the libertarian, which is you know for the most part. Uh, at least on the American side, very capitalist, a and some of these either uh, previously socialist or or out still socialist thinkers. You know, uh, if you look at, for instance, Gottfried and Marcuse and uh, uh, Hoppe and um, I guess Habermas. And yeah, some of yeah, these guys. He which, was a student of Habermas. That's right. He said that Habermas uh, was very disappointed when he. Uh, didn't when he became more libertarian. It doesn't shock me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you did you edited a collection, uh, Dr. Gordon, Secession, State, and Liberty, 
Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, oh yes. Well, uh, the way that came about was that uh, when uh, in 1995 uh, the Mises Conference uh, Institute had a conference in Charleston, South Carolina, and we were very interested in uh, uh, the idea of secession, especially uh, during the American Civil War and uh, also in other places. So there were a number of people who gave papers at the conference, such as uh, Clyde Wilson, who's an authority on John C. Calhoun, uh, the philosopher uh, Donald Livingston, and uh, various other people. So then the proceedings of that conference with some other essays was published in the collection that you mentioned, Secession, State, and Liberty. Okay. All right. And so... so, um did any any particular essay that was included in that stand out to you? Maybe as being one of the ones that 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 uh, if you were going to recommend that someone read one, I mean, obviously you you we would recommend that someone read the entire book. But if there was any any essay out of there that you would uh, really recommend that an individual, if they could pick one, would would read out of that, oh, is there one that you? Uh, well, I think uh, Rothbard. They they included an essay by Rothbard. Of course, he had passed away in uh, January 1995 before the conference was held. They included an essay by Rothbard on uh, the discuss secession. So I think that that would be a very good one. I think Don Livingston's essay is very good. He's a very good philosopher. He's one of the world's greatest authorities on David Hume. I find his, uh, he's a very... uh, Good thinker. He's not a conventional libertarian, but he believes in uh, in he's sympathetic, and I find his thought very very good. So I I recommend the uh, Rothbard essay and also Donald Livingston. But the essays in in the book are very good, and I think people uh, should definitely read them. All right, and and I know you also wrote another book. Uh, called the essential, or you wrote another book called the essential Rothbard. Oh, oh yes, yes. Well, then I was I was trying to sum up uh, some of Murray Rothbard's contributions in in different fields. I had a little bit of biography, but mostly where I go through some of the main areas he contributed to uh, economics, history, political theory, and so on. I I tried to give an account of. Some of his his views. He he was an interesting individual. He he had an impact that, that that from from where I'm at, from what I can see, his he he extended beyond uh, libertarian circles um, into conservative movement, and even in some cases in, into some of the more um, centrist and, and even occasionally some you know influence on on some people on the left. I would think. Um, wouldn't you say? Oh, oh yes, yes. You see, he had uh, for a while. Well, when he started off, he was associated with this group called the Volcker Fund, which financed a lot of uh, classical liberal and also uh, conservative thinkers. So he got to meet a lot of the conservative thinkers there. And uh, for a while, he he worked, wrote columns and. Essays for National Review, which was edited by William Buckley, and he met a lot of the conservatives influenced by Buckley. So he had been in touch with a lot of uh, conservatives, and he had some influence on on them. But then during the uh, Vietnam War, he became... He had a shift in alliances for a while. He he was allied with the left because for him, in politics, uh, foreign policy tended to be the most important issue, especially opposition to war and intervention. So for a while, he was allied with the left. And then uh, in the last few years, he had to move more back toward the right to a group called the paleo-conservatives that uh, he felt that the libertarian party wasn't going in a direction that he he was 
comfortable with, and he allied more with the the, the paleoconservative uh, group. So there was there were shifts, but basically, in my view, the principles he held were consistent throughout his life. He just had changes in tactical, based on tactical considerations on which groups to ally with to best advance his principles. Okay, and that makes sense. Sort of, uh, he he emphasized where he had things in common with the groups that he was allied with as as, as time at that time, which makes sense to me from a from yes, the standpoint yes. of, of you know maintaining a, a, a political alliance with with somebody. Um, and that you know, you're talking about the Libertarian Party wasn't really going the way that he'd hoped to see it go. I, I I don't think the Cato Institute had really went went the direction that Murray had hoped to see it go, did it? No. You see, what had happened there? Uh, I wrote a little bit on this topic. See, the Cato Institute was founded in the late 1970s by uh, Charles Koch and. Uh, Murray Rothbard was one of the founders, Ed Crane, and what they were explicitly supposed to do was to advance a Rothbardian view of libertarianism, but then in it soon developed the leaders of the Cato Institute were willing to uh, compromise. They didn't want to have just strictly Rothbardian ideas, they would embrace, embrace more, say, pre-market uh, Chicago-style economics, or they would have certain compromises on, uh, they, they would favor what they call low-tax liberalism, and Murray thought that they had compromised too much, and he criticized them very strongly, and there was a falling out, and the uh, the falling out was very bitter, and in fact, uh, people uh, even to this day are in uh, different groups who were still around from those days are in different groups because they took different sides on that uh, that falling out. Well. Um, I guess we, I started thinking about like you're talking about the, the Koch brothers and and some of the people. Now some of the people, I mean, in a way, some of those people, while they were Rothbardian, they were kind of uh, some of them kind of found their way into libertarianism through through Robert Lefebvre, didn't they? Uh, that, so, like like the Koch brothers and and so oh, on. And maybe oh, yeah, they had yeah. a, a slightly different take than, than Rothbard did, which may have led to some of the some of the little bit of the schism. Because I, I, although I know that Lefebvre was mostly uh, Misesian at the same time. But what do you think about that? Oh, well, it, you're certainly right that uh, Charles Koch had been influenced by Lefebvre, and he went to the uh, Freedom School in, uh, Colorado, in uh, Colorado, uh, run by Lefebvre. But you see, in the split that we were talking about, uh, the people who split with Lefebvre was someone who didn't believe in any involvement with the state at all. So in contrast to, say, Ed Crane or others who were in favor of low-tax liberalism, Lefebvre's position was we shouldn't have anything to do with legislation or voting at all. So that wouldn't have been something that people Mm. who were involved in the Ed Clark campaign for president would uh, have had much use for it. Uh, Lefebvre had some influence on uh, Roy Childs, who was a uh, one of the big people who was involved. I should big in this both literally and figuratively in the in the uh, Ed Clark campaign. But Lefebvre, uh, Lefebvre's idea was uh, ideas were more of a a completely anarchist and pacifist direction. He had some unusual views. For example, he thought not only is it wrong to enact legislation, it's also wrong to repeal legislation because you're still involved <laughs> with the government. 
And then uh, he also said something like, well, it's wrong, say, to steal someone's property. But if someone does, suppose somebody steals your wallet, then it's wrong of you to use force against the person to try to get it back. And I think he thought that uh, even though the person had come to acqu- had acquired the property illegitimately, as long as he was in possession of it, it would be wrong for you to try to take it away. You remind me a bit of uh, Kant's view of revolution, where he thought revolution was wrong, political revolution is wrong, but if there's a revolutionary regime, then you can't do anything to restore the old regime because that's now the one you know, come to power wrongly once it's there you can't do anything about it right so yeah so so Lefay was an interesting guy he had some good ideas but he had a lot there was some wrong-headedness there as well i think and i think one of the things that i've seen that i always thought was really funny was uh, i guess there was a uh, a Libertarian convention or meeting, and they had uh, Lefebvre was speaking, and he pretty much said, you know, hey, you know, he was a pacifist, and it was wrong to use force under any circumstances. And then uh, Murray came up after him, and they asked him what he would do if someone uh, initiated force, and he was like, well, I'd plug him. Oh yeah, yeah, I think that that actually did happen. That Mur- Murray said that. Yes, I. I didn't know Lefebvre. I met him just once at a meeting. He seemed like a very friendly person, but I, I never got to talk to him. He, he had some he had some interesting views on things. He has his uh, book, uh, This Bread is Mine, is worth reading. I think he's uh, he has his own. Uh, and he, he published a journal called the Rampart Journal of Individualist Thought that had some very important contributions by various libertarian thinkers. He and the historian uh, James J. Martin were very close. Hmm. Okay. So, so David, do you have any another question or two for, for Dr. Gordon? We're, we're getting close to our hour being up. I want to make sure that if you have any questions, you get to ask Dr. Gordon before we wrap up. What is your take on your You're breaking up there a little bit, David. Go ahead and repeat that again. I'm sorry you're breaking up. Um, what is your take on Wait, um, what is my take on on what? Hello. Uh, we may have we may be losing him. He's he said he's like I, he's I heard. Some... What is your take on something? Uh, I think what he was he, he said. I think he, what he was wanting to ask you about was postmodernism. Oh. What's your take on postmodernism? Uh, well, uh, there are various uh, movements associated with that term. I, how about uh, how about existentialism, uh, Doctor Gordon? Oh, oh yeah. Well, of course, existentialism. Interesting, you know. The uh, I think th- there are various existentialist philosophers. And of course, it came in. It came to prominence after World War Two in the thought of Sartre and. Uh, I've I've thought uh, I think Heidegger is a very interesting writer. He's sometimes classified as an existentialist, although he didn't think he was. I once had a letter from him. I thought he he had some some interesting views on things. But uh, yeah, I mean the the existentialists I think tended to I think one could criticize they tended to reject the notion of human nature. They thought this was a restriction on our freedom. So I I think that's questionable. There's one uh, writer, William Irwin, who's tried to come up with an exist- existentialist defense of libertarianism. He's published a, a couple books, or at least one book on that theme. So I think it's it's an interesting 
type of philosophy. The type of philosophy I'm most familiar with is kind of straight analytic philosophy. Uh, sometimes it's a kind of caricature to say this of the existentialists and other continental thinkers, but to some extent it's true. They don't go in for arguments as much. They'll tend to say, here's the way we see the world, and then they'll present a picture that might be uh, appealing or not, depending on what you think of it. But they tend uh, very often to just advance some kind of startling proposition and then they, if you say, well, why do you think that? They don't very, sometimes don't have much to say. Although, uh, now Sartre later became much more sympathetic to Marxism. He had, uh, uh, you want to say, one after being in nothingness in his main existentialist philosophical book, he had the critique of dialectical reason. He, he tended to write enormously long Long books. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, I have funny, st- attempted funny stories on him. Uh, I once asked my greatest teacher, who was Walter Starkey, what he thought of Sartre, and he said to me, "Nasty bit of stuff. He attacked my sister." <laughs> you see, what, what he was referring to was that uh, uh, Sartre had written a biography of Flaubert the great uh, French novelist, and in it, in it he criticized uh, Enid Starkey's work on Flaubert, and she was uh, Walter Starkey's sister, so that, that was why he said that. <laughs> now, that's that's pretty funny stuff. So, so okay, so we, we're down, we just have a, a time for maybe one quick question and answer. Um, and before we have to wrap, because we only have about uh, three minutes, uh, maybe. Uh, and, and this is almost not fair to ask, but maybe you can hit this fairly quick, Dr. Gordon. Um, what do you think about uh, Stephen Kinsella's uh, position on intellectual property? Oh well, I thought he had he had some good arguments. I think there there's quite a bit in it. Uh, I tend to think. Uh, Basic. I think he he's probably. I think he made a good case for uh, criticizing intellectual property. I would think uh, there are some differences I have. The, uh, I think one problem with one of his arguments is he says something like, "Well, uh, property rights have to be uh, something like how do we." how do we decide what to do or how do we allocate uh, resources that they're limited resources, say people have conflicts over limited resources, so how do we decide what are the property rules by which, say, if I want to eat an apple, you can't eat it at the same time, or at least it would be very difficult, so we have property rights in that, but ideas are people can consume the ideas at the same time in unlimited fashion. So we can't, the notion of property rights in ideas doesn't make sense. And I'm not clear why we would have to accept that view of property rights. We have to say, well, this is what a property right must be. I'm not clear I would have to say that, but I do think he has some good arguments against intellectual property so I think he's basically on the right track but it's more his general arguments on property rights that I'd be a bit skeptical about rather than his conclusions about intellectual property all right well well thank you for that answer and we're down to the last couple seconds and maybe take 15 20 seconds anything that you would like to let the audience know that you're working on currently Oh, well, I'm just uh, I'm just trying to get my lectures ready for the uh, museums. The hardest part will be to come up with new jokes for the, <laughs> for the lectures. Like uh, one I I'm I've given in the past was I'll, I say something like uh, uh, I hate I start off I, I hate to cut off. you off, 
Dr. Gordon, but we're down to 10 seconds. I just wanted to, uh, sorry about that. We'll have to have you back on. I'm very, it's been a big honor to have you on here. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. Oh, well, thanks for, thanks for having me. It was very nice talking to you. Yeah, definitely enjoyed it. We'll definitely have to have you back on. Thank you very much, Dr. Gordon. Thank you. Bye.